You're listening to TMI with Christine, a show where we give you way too much information about meal planning and time management. Hey, hey, this is Christine Pittman, and you're listening to TMI with Christine, a show where we give you way too much information about meal planning and time management. Why? So that you don't have to find these things for yourself. Just sit back, relax, listen to this show, and we're going to give you some great ideas for streamlining your cooking life. So I've got a bit of a codependency problem when it comes to cooking and eating, and What I mean by that is I seem to take it really personally if people like or don't like my cooking. And I mean, on some level, that is wrapped up with my career, right? Because I am supposedly a good cook. And so if I'm cooking for somebody, say, for the first time, and they know this about me and they don't like the food, I'm like, oh, are they thinking... How does she have this job? You know, so so there's that part of it for sure. But I also feel that way with people that I've cooked for a bazillion times who know that I'm fairly respectable at doing this and, um, and, and it, do- it shouldn't reflect on my career choice or, you know, or my self-esteem really. <laughs> and yet it still seems to, right? Like if I make a meal for someone and they're not overjoyed or not like, oh, this is good. Um, I I feel like hurt inside, especially if I'm really enjoying it. If I made an effort to make something that they would like and I'm taking their preferences into account and I'm spending the time and then I make it and they don't seem to love it, I feel like I I feel like too hurt by that, you know? And I am guessing that I'm not alone in that. We've been having these conversations with a whole bunch of cooks. In the course of this show, we've been talking to um, different people who do the cooking for their family. And I feel like there's a lot of this, right? We heard from Selena about the pressure to um, be a good cook or the pressure to like cooking, right? We talked to uh, Gabriella who was talking about how um, the thing she likes most about cooking is when her family likes the meal, right? So I, I don't think that I'm alone in feeling sort of wrapped up in my emotions about cooking and the food that I'm making, right? I, I, I think that other people have this same experience and I'm guessing that it's tied to a lot of, you know, basic stuff um, as like parents and caregivers, and nurturers, this feeling of providing sustenance for our loved ones. And that's important. We need it to survive. And also feeling like we've done a good job, that we're doing a good job at being parents, mothers, um, cooks, all that sort of stuff. It's all wrapped up in there together. And I'm not really sure what to do about it because um, we don't want to get rid of it exactly. These are the people that we're cooking for and we do need them to like the food for a variety of reasons, right? It is their nutrition. They need to eat um, and and eat in the way that we feel is is good for them. And, And we want to get that food into their bodies to sustain them. There's also like a money consideration, right? Like if I make my partner something for dinner and he doesn't like it and he doesn't eat it and goes and makes himself something else, that's money spent on groceries that is being wasted. That is my time that's being wasted, right? Um, all of these things are important and we don't want to, you know, say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they don't like it because it, it does, right? It matters to their nutrition. It matters to our money and our time um, and a whole bunch of stuff. So I think what I want to say here is that I want us, me, and anybody who feels this to start trying to think about why it's important that the people we're cooking for like the food 
It is important, as I said, for their nutrition because we've spent our time and, and because it's costing money and that that's why it's important. And try to not be taking it as um, codependently, personally, as, you know, somehow a slight on me, my chosen career, or me as a mother, or or me as a cook, right? And And we can try and think about it as a more practical consideration, right? So um, I've said all that, and I want that to stand, and I want us to hear that we should be trying to not take this personally. And then I'm going to pivot in the next part of this show and talk about tips and ideas to get people to like new foods and like our cooking. So if we can hold it within ourselves that we should try not to take it too personally when people don't like our food, but that we need them to for a variety of reasons, we can maybe talk about how we can help them to like these foods. So I'm going to come back in a few minutes and talk about that. And then I have a really cool guest for you. And it's super related to what I'm talking about. It is Charles Spence, who is a psychologist at Oxford University. And he's a food scientist there who researches a bunch of factors that contribute into our enjoyment of food. So definitely stay tuned for that. So we are talking about some ways to get people to like the food that we make, or at least to eat it, whether they like it or not, really. Um, And we know that we're going to try not to be doing this because we're going to take it personally if they don't like it, but because there is some stuff tied up with that in terms of money and time and, and needing people to eat so that they're getting food into them, so that they are getting sustenance and nutrition. So the first thing I want to talk about is um, something that I first started thinking about when I heard Mark Bittman talking about his VB6 diet. That's vegan before six. So Mark Bittman is, of course, a New York Times food writer, and he has cookbooks. How to Cook Everything is one of my favorite books um, ever, uh, cookbooks. And um, anyways, he he talks about how because of his career as somebody who's eating delicious food, coming up with great recipes, reviewing restaurants, just trying all this stuff, he often doesn't have a lot of control over his diet and can't eat in the healthy way that he would like to all the time. And so he came up with this a vegan during the day diet where before 6 p.m., he eats a healthy vegan diet. So lots of um, plant-based, well, all plant-based and, you know, uh, healthy ways. So he's not just living on French fries, which are vegan, but not healthy vegan, right? Um, So he eats like a healthy vegan during the day. And then after 6 p.m., he has whatever he wants, whatever is required by his job or whatever he needs to be indulgent. And I feel like I have adopted part of that into my own life when it comes to Um, dieting for my health and I often ask myself before cooking something or before making myself a quick meal do I need to love this or is this just for sustenance so if I'm making myself a quick breakfast in the morning and I'm scrabbling some egg whites I can just have some egg whites and a piece of toast and and be there and that's the quick thing that I'm making for myself and it doesn't have to have cheese on it you know if, if I could if I could put cheese on everything I would put cheese on everything but I don't need to if this is a meal that's just for sustenance and I think quite often um, my kids and I feel like I see this in a lot of other places have come to expect or believe that they should love every single bite of food that they have that every meal should be delicious And I don't think that's true and it's probably not um, healthy for us, right? Not not that fruits and vegetables and legumes and healthy, you know, scrambled plain egg whites can't be delicious. That's not really what I'm saying. But I'm saying this feeling of entitlement that we have to or we should get to love every bite um, can make it hard for us to have a meal that is not delicious at every bite, Right. And so I think being honest with the people that we're cooking for and saying, hey, 
this meal is just to get us through or like sometimes our food is is just for sustenance and not for deliciousness we're gonna have that amazing thing on friday but today thursday we're just having this plain chicken breast and plain broccoli and that's what we're having and no apology like this is our nutrition and this is our sustenance and it doesn't have to have cheese sauce on the side right um and and just talking about that and and learning to give the message of um not all food has to be the most remarkable food we've ever had and that things can be more medium and as long as they're not disgusting we can eat them um and and then I think acknowledging that with people like hey I know you didn't love that that wasn't your favorite meal ever but thanks for eating it like thanks that that you know it, it it I put the time in to make it I appreciate that you ate it and the other thing that I've been trying to do in this area is let my family know that sometimes I am cooking a meal that's more for myself. I often take their food preferences into account and and do things that I know they're going to love, even if it's like so-so for me. But sometimes I can be like, hey, this is something that I love. I really wanted this chicken with brie sauce. And I know you guys don't love brie and there's brie on the chicken, but like you're okay with that, right? You can you can get through that today, right? And then in turn, having them come up with meals that they want on different days. So like some days we're having something that I'm going to like and some days we're having something that you're going to like. And as long as it's not disgusting and it's edible, it can sustain us, right? And making that the important thing. And we're this whole time modeling a good food behavior. We're modeling what we think is healthy to our family and we're making things that we think are are good for them and that are going to sustain them. And that modeling and that providing of those good foods along with the message of like, this is a good thing for you to eat. Even if you don't love it, you can still have it. It's going to be okay. Those behaviors are really, really helpful in getting to a place where People can enjoy mealtime and eat the nutritious food that you're cooking and providing for them without necessarily having to love every bite of it. And maybe that can also take some of our pressure off if we're being very honest about, you know, I'm not necessarily always cooking so that you will love every bite. I am often cooking just so that we have food. And if we're telling that to ourselves and we're telling that to them, that can really help to take that pressure off and to not feel so personally about it. I will say, though, that there is something that I do and I used to do more when my kids were younger that really worked to get them to try new things and and to eat things. And that is a little bit of bribing. But I don't bribe them with actual like material stuff or with dessert or anything like that. I bribe my kids when they were younger, especially with the ability to make a wish. So I would say... Ooh, you've never had that before. If you try that new food, you get to make a wish. And so we had this rule in our family where when you try something new for the first time, you get to make a wish. And you know kids love making wishes, right? We make a wish when there's an eyelash on our cheek. We make a wish when we find a penny on the ground, when the first star comes out at night. These are all all fun times that we know. So make a wish when you try a new food. You get that privilege when you try a new food. That worked really well especially when they were younger. It doesn't work so much now. I will tell you that I did once bribe Emily, my daughter. I think she was about seven years old. I offered her $5 if she would try some wasabi. Spicy, spicy wasabi at a Japanese sushi place. And she tried it. She did not like it. She claimed her $5 though. I don't think we can always offer our kids money for trying foods, but there are like places for these techniques that we hear about and, you know, trying different things and Finding out what works in our household is, of course, a great idea. And I have another uh, tip for you to get your family to try new things and to eat things. And that is to listen to the interview that I've got coming up because I promise there are so many amazing ideas and and just amazing science-based stuff in this conversation that's going to help you so much. 
You're listening to Christine talk about meal planning and time management, but do you know who she is? She's been helping households with her recipes and time management ideas for over a decade on CookTheStory.com and The Cookful. With over 2 million visitors per month on her websites and over 40 outstanding cookbooks, now she's talking to you directly on this podcast and accompanying newsletter. Go to CookTheStory.com slash newsletter and get her meal plans, recipes, and all her amazing ideas to help you and your family in the kitchen. Now back to the show. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Charles Spence. He's a professor of experimental psychology at Oxford University, where he's also the head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory, and he's the author of Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating, and of The Perfect Meal, both of which you can get on Amazon. His research focuses on how all of the senses are involved in our enjoyment of food in in very surprising ways, and I think you're just going to love hearing all of his ideas and what he has to say about his research. Charles, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Great. So I want to hear all about your research, but I always start the show asking who is in your household and who does the most of the cooking? So I live here with my wife, Barbara, a Colombian lady, and um, uh, I do, I'd say, 95% of the uh, cooking. Okay. And do you like um, cooking? Uh, yes, yes. Um most of the time i think uh <laughs> time to relax kind of and uh, get away from stuff so it's a uh, sort of tranquil one of those things where you've got to do something and you've got you've got to be active but uh so it's kind of um you're thinking about something but it's not your work i guess yes i love that so do you think it's liking cooking that got you interested in your field of study or was it a different path no it took me sort of surprisingly long time to get into the world of uh flavor really um as a psychologist by training, I've always been interested in uh, the senses and how they interact and, and how they influence our perception and our behavior and our well-being. Um, but for the first five or 10 years, I was just looking at hearing and vision and warning signals and car driving and technology. Um, I never really thought about applying the research to food and drink. Um, in part, just because many of the other psychologists, they don't like working with food because it's too messy. Mm. and you know, somebody's got to make it somebody's got to clean up the dishes people get full up and so on and so forth so much easier to just study the senses that you can deliver on a computer of which food is definitely not one of those things mm-hmm. um and then kind of got dragged in back in about 2000 really through uh unilever who was funding the lab that i ran here in oxford mm-hmm. and i had been doing laundry detergents and the smells that make things feel soft and then they had a problem with their fruit teas that smelt great and looked brightly colored but when people tried them it's kind of disappointing just didn't really taste of much hmm. so that was kind of a, a multi-sensory question why was the disconnect this disconnect why were people disappointed with this product and i started there uh soon jumped into the sonic chip which kind of um uh showing how, how, how um enhancing the sound of a crunch when people bite into a several hundred fringles in fact uh changed how fresh and tasty it was hmm. and that research that I never really thought much about at the time kind of exploded on the world stage when we uh, won the Ig Nobel Prize for Nutrition wow. uh, in 2008 um, and that then led into uh, more work with the food industry but also um, introduction to chefs like former world's best chef Heston Blumenthal um, and we started doing experiments together and suddenly uh, I've never looked back since. Uh, that- now in hindsight it seems like the most obvious place to be given an interest in food and in cooking and uh, an interest in the senses. But it did take me uh, rather a long time to to get to where I am. But nowadays, I just spend all my time trying to tell my colleagues, even as scientists, if you're not interested in food, you should be because that's what the brain developed, evolved to kind of probably find and forage and uh, pay attention to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to go back to what you said about Pringles, which is, I think, very connected with a lot of your research now and that 
enjoying a Pringle isn't just about enjoying the flavor of the Pringle. There's so much more that goes into it and goes into our enjoyment of food that would probably surprise us. Is that is that what you would say? Uh, that's right. So I guess when you ask people, uh, you know, what do you think makes something tasty? Uh, then the, most people just think about what's happening in the tongue, on the mouth, because that's where we experience flavors. We can feel them there in the, in the food and the drink that's sloshing around in our oral cavity. Um, and yet I think all the senses are actually involved. Um, definitely the sense of smell is very important. As we all sort of know, when we have a head cold uh, or God forbid COVID-19, mm. then we kind of lose our sense of smell, but we think we lost our sense of taste. Uh, color of food is probably very important too. Um, people might get that, but no one really thinks about the sound of food. Mm. And that's where uh, my re I kind of came in really uh, trying to take some experimental approaches from laboratory psychology studies uh, and apply them to the food, to, to potato chips. Uh, Pringles in particular, because they're all the same size and shape, so they're really good for my kind of research. Mm. If you say something different about the first and the second Pringle, it must be because of what I did to them, not right. differences in them themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, tr really trying to resolve this question of why is it that no one likes a stale potato chip? Mm -hmm. It has the taste, it has the smell, it has the fat, it has everything, the calories, but the only thing it doesn't have is the sound, but sound can't keep us going very long, has no right. nutritional value. So why is it that all of our snack foods are crispy, crunchy, crackly? They all make noise. Um, and how can you optimize that noise? So really, I guess I come in as thinking about sound as the forgotten flavor sense. Right. Um, and thinking about how to build that in, uh, enhance it in, in, in the foods and drinks we make and, and how else actually now the sounds that surround us when we're thinking about what to order, when we are eating, when we're at the supermarket, when we're in the wine store, wherever we might be, how those sounds, even when we're cooking and preparing food, how the sounds, background music, background noise, all of these things, the sound of the packaging, they all turn out to have an impact hmm. on how we behave and what we think about what we've made. Yeah. Okay. So my audience is mostly home cooks. And what I'd really like to dive into is what we can take from your research to all of these things, enjoy cooking more, enjoy for ourselves the food we make and have our maybe picky eating family members enjoy the food. Is there something about sound research or texture or, um, or scent, any of, any of your research that will help us as home cooks and our families? Uh, absolutely. Um, a lot of the experiments we do uh, end up being sort of funded by food and beverage industry. Um, mm. But the most fun we have is with chefs. And while that often is with um, world leading Michelin star best chefs, mm. I think some of the insights that come from there actually apply to anybody and everybody, um, no matter what we like to eat. And, uh, because, you know, whatever we choose to prepare, whatever we choose to serve, whatever is served to us in terms of food, uh, it will always involve all the senses. It will always look like something. Mm -hmm. So what are the colours doing to you? Uh, how can you optimise things you know, by using brighter colours, colour contrast, thinking about what plate you serve the food on mm. uh, can be important. Uh, everything from uh, one that really strikes me is how often our research and the research from with the chef shows how important naming is and description. Oh. Um, and yet, you know, very often when we're at home, like when we're on an aeroplane, they say, you know, do you want chicken or fish? And if that's all you can say about the food right there, you kind of lost part of the enjoyment, part of the experience. And hence I say, no, when you think about cooking at home, don't just think about what am I making? What ingredients do I need? But what am I going to call it? How do I want to describe it? And the more sensory descriptive labels you can add, uh, the more authentic the name, that's already setting expectations and will help your guests to enjoy whatever you've made that little bit more. So um, naming, so you're saying instead of saying, what are we having for dinner, chicken and rice, we should yep. come up with, now, does it matter if we come up with our own new names for it? Like crunchy Italian chicken and, or should it that sounds be? Good. That sounds good, right there already. <laughs> um, so so uh, people have looked at this and said, okay, what sort of descriptors should you add to your dish? Um, and it could be giving it the authentic name. Uh, spaghetti alla bolognese, mm -hmm. probably, um, will make things taste that little bit more authentic than spag bol. Oh. <laughs> um, so the language, but then also if you're going to describe it, adding as you just did, sort of sensory descriptive labels, things about crispy, call it crunchy. You know, we all like our, you know, pizzas when we, we buy them in to be sort of, you know, crispy, 
base pizza, whether or not they are, but just by calling them that thing makes it sound more appealing and may help us to enjoy. So if you want your kids to get the to eat their vegetables, then the research coming out of some of the West Coast fancy North American universities studies suggest, you know, um, call them a zingy carrot uh, or twisted, twisted something else, twisted carrots and zingy uh, and use those sort of sensory descriptive labels because those are the ones that seem to uh, uh, appeal most um, and will bias what people eat. And in this study from um, uh, one of those California universities, I forget which one, Stanford, I think, from their canteen, you actually had people, students and staff eating more vegetables by giving the, the, you know, the descriptors that were more that, appealing. That's so fascinating. So I wanted, so you said one of the, the keys is the, the, um, texture description that crispy crunchy mm. that sort of thing now is that because as you start eating the thing your brain is evaluating like is this actually crispy like what is going on that is making the naming um and i should tell you i'm a linguist by original oh, okay. trade so I, i'm just gonna fixate over here <laughs> okay. um so i think there are a few things on the one hand uh if we've got something like you know coffee or wine then as a regular consumer, we'll struggle to figure out to get the, the grapefruit and the toasted walnut and the this and that. And so by giving anchors, by telling people what they might find in a drink, uh, that helps them to look for it and kind of get it much more easily. So, mm-hmm. uh, but beyond that, you know, before we ever put anything in our mouths, um, we've all, our brain has already made a prediction of what it is, what it's going to taste like. Um, and so a lot of our work in, in sort of the gastrophysics is about how do you optimize that expectation? Because I think what really happens is our main, our brains make predictions of the world of what's going to happen, but also what food is going to taste like. Uh, we decide what the flavor is going to be. Is it calorific or not? Do I like it or not? How sweet? Will it be crispy? And then um, by the time we actually put some of that food into our mouth, um, we might periodically check, is it as I thought it was going to be? Is it like my expectation? And if it's more or less like what you expected, then you sort of forget about it, go back to your social media or your TV or your Netflix or whatever it might be. And so really we live in the world of our expectations mm-hmm. and not really in the world of our experience, I think. Um, uh, and, and hence, if you can then set the expectations people have of being slightly better, not, I mean, if I sell you, if I give you a really soggy thing, but call it crispy, <laughs> then you very much say there's something wrong here. I don't like, I've been fooled. Right. But there's like a range to play with where you can set the right kind of expectations, that, the expectations that people want in their food. And then uh, if you more or less get it right, they'll live in those nice expectations. Um, oh, so is it, okay. Is it like, if I just tell you we're having chicken, then... <laughs> your brain or you're your thinking, do I like this? Just this very vague, do I like this? Which is maybe hard to meet anywhere. Whereas if I tell you we're having crispy chicken, you're evaluating, ooh, is this crispy? Which is very, and then, yes, it is crispy. Therefore, I like it. Like, is there something like that? So so, 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 so sort of drawing your attention to something, mm-hmm. an attribute, because, you know, when we're eating, um, then there's lots of stuff going on, both in the food itself. There are tastes and there are smells and there are textures and there are sounds and there are, things to see in the food uh, and they're changing over time each time we swallow and crunch maybe it's a slightly different impression we get um, and hence it's a really complex kind of experience lots of sensations and hence by drawing your attention to something either by setting the expectation in advance or in some of our work we kind of use music to actually mm. draw attention to to what you're tasting in a more synesthetic way uh, then if I can draw your attention to something just like the wine expert does, you know, when they're doing a tutored wine tasting and they say, can't you get the, I don't know, the uh, that hint of red pepper? And suddenly I couldn't before, but as soon as they said it, yeah, it's right there. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of you know, drawing your attention to something in your experience. And whenever we tend to something, uh, it becomes more salient to us. We're more aware of it, maybe remember it better. Um, that's kind of partly why, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, uh, eating because one of the things that comes out of the book is one of the worst things to do when we're eating is is to be distracted, mm. be it by television. And depending on the show, you're eating you know 30% more food if the TV's on, mm. at the meal table. Uh, if you've got your social media, your, you know, your mobile device there, that's probably 15% increase in food simply by through being distracted. Hmm. So I was trying to bring, you know, bring people's attention back to the food. Mm-hmm. And the more you're aware of the sensations, then that's great because the sooner you'll be full. So you'll probably eat a bit less. But you'll also probably enjoy the experience uh, more. 
um, and, and as naming is sort of a part of that, both in setting our expectations of what we might enjoy in the food before it even goes in our mouth, um, and then anchoring the experiences we have. So I'm thinking now about crispy, whereas you know if you did, if you had if you just said here's chicken tonight, I might have been thinking about you know its colour, how white is it, or was it organic or free range, or mm-hmm. or probably not thinking about it at all. But those right. you know there's, there's there's those sort of descriptive labels. I bet you could probably even get us salivating right in advance a bit um as well as the uh uh the uh, what it looks like and, and so on um so and that naming seems to be such a simple thing that we most of us often forget we just think as long as i get the right ingredients and make sure not to burn it mm-hmm. then i'm fine but there's and who more. thought who would think about naming a dish right you're at home just with your family or or something but uh it is important and i guess the companies and the food industry and the wine and the drinks they all know that um, but there's no reason why we can't use the same sort of ideas to help absolutely so okay you mentioned your book is that the perfect meal is that the one that um talks about this sort of thing um both that one which is from 2014 uh, mm-hmm. and also 2017 gastrophysics it's kind of the updated version and, and the um slightly more popular in style um uh but yeah both of them uh, talk about the naming and, and the senses and how to optimize um food delivery mm-hmm. be it in the restaurant or be it in the home um through naming as, as one thing but then of course given i'm a sort of multi-sensory scientist i'm really interested right. in how you can use color mm-hmm. um and ha- and all the things that most of us don't really ever think about like uh, the knife and the fork oh uh you know every every or, or the or the cup or the glass these things you know, every bit of food i've had most of it's gone into my mouth via the fork or a spoon Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet until 2011, no one had ever studied the science of the fork or the spoon. And, and how, how do the fork and the spoon matter? I, what, what kind of fork should I be looking for? Uh, to put very simply, uh, the heavier the cutlery, the better food tastes. Really? Um, and, you know, and, and sort of the chefs and, and restaurateurs sort of know that intuitively. So, yeah, yeah, kind of makes sense. I sort of knew that. I didn't really sort of believe it, but uh, it's a... You know, if it, try serving a fancy meal with plastic knife and fork, it just wouldn't be right. Yeah, no. Or no, wooden so- cutlery that I've seen some fancy restaurants using. Um, and the heavier, the better. And we've tested this in the lab in Oxford, but mm. also in restaurants, in hotel restaurants in Scotland and elsewhere uh, in London. Um, and is that because we associate heavier cutlery with um, more money or like more like value? Like well, I'm wondering um, if yeah. something like beautifully delicate and light and, and, and clearly lovely would be would do the same thing or is it really like that, that, always comes down to weight? I think it always comes down to weight. Uh, I think, you know, how well designed something is, is also important, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but just weight by itself um, uh, 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 really matters and really works. Uh, and of course you can go too far. Uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. See one restaurant where the cutlery was so heavy, people started complaining about it, <laughs> but there's a range where we could all probably, um, that's kind of the first thing I do when I get to a restaurant is sort of pick up the cutlery and figure out what sort of meal I'm going to have. Yeah. There. Um, and yeah, it does make things taste better. Um, and uh, I give the example, I think in the um, in the Perfect Meal book of Concord, when they were flying, uh, supersonic jet and every gram counted. So it's like the minimum weight for everything. So they brought in some very uh, high-end designers here in the UK to make some titanium cutlery. Mm-hmm. That was beautifully designed, mm-hmm. but it didn't last very long at all because the, the passengers just, it was too light. Oh, um, flimsy, so, not enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. And then the same thing sort of happens, you know, with cups and glasses that there's so many people who study the drink, mm-hmm. uh, be it the coffee, the tea or whatever, uh, but very few people study the, 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 the glass uh, or the cup or the mug. And every drink has come comes to you in a glass, a cup, a mug, a yes. can, a bottle, uh, a pouch. Uh, and that is is really important. Um, and hence we work a lot to say, with designers and, and plateware manufacturers and cut manufacturers and glass manufacturers to see how it influences us and what's the best kind of combination. So for um, for cups then, um, so I know, for instance, I don't drink a lot of soda, but if I'm going to have soda, I much prefer to drink, you know, a Coca-Cola out of a glass bottle than out of a can. Yep. Um, is, that, is it heaviness there too, or is there something else <laughs> going on? Uh, and you are not alone in this, that uh, the majority of people seem to prefer their Coca-Cola out of the bottle than the can. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing also goes, I think, for beer. 
mm. well, that's slightly changing now, but again, beer from a bottle seems to be better from the, than a can, they tell us, the beer drinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's definitely partly weight. And we have done studies where we just added you know, to a, a can of cola, just added a little tiny weight, like a coin, stuck underneath the bottom of the can. Wow. We give the cans to people and say, just open it, take a sip, tell me what you think. And that weight changes the, what they say. Wow, that's so fascinating. So weight's definitely important there. But I'm also, I think the Coca-Cola one's really interesting because that bottle is very sort of distinctive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The um, uh, bell, like the Southern Bell, sort of very curvaceous. Mm-hmm. Um, and what our research and others' research now also shows is if you feel something curvy in your hand, things taste sweeter. Oh, so I bet uh, you know the typeface of Coca-Cola is very curvy. The right. bottle itself is very curvy. Um, it's also distinctive in in in, in shape, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that most other bottles and cans aren't. Right, uh, right. So I think it's got a lot of stuff going in there that probably helps to explain why it's lasted so long. Um, hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, now I want to know plates. We don't pick up plates. So I'm yes, assuming yes. that weight <laughs> is not going to be the hugest issue for plate, but contrast color. Most of us have, I think, white dishes. That seems to yep. be the, is that the way to go? Or should we be having multicolored um, or? So um, I guess they, 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 they do call it the, uh, was it the North American white plate as the one that's, you know, sold in 90% of the, or 70 to 90% of all plates sold. Here in Europe, as well as I guess in North America, mm-hmm. is the uh, large white American plate. Yes, um, I guess that sort of came in with a uh, uh, nouvelle cuisine in a way, mm-hmm. more space to play and make things look beautiful. Um, I think it is problematic, um, both from the size of it, you know, the bigger the plate, the more we're tempted to stick on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, uh, I'm seeing now a lot more, especially in, in sort of English. Uh, restaurants and gastro pubs, but also in the home uh, and, and in the um, plateware shows, a lot more sort of earthenware coming into fashion with different mm-hmm. coloured pottery. With so a bit more sort of Japanese looking to me, right? Because they always have you know very different coloured sort of um, in, uniquely formed pieces that are not mm-hmm. all the same size, all the same colour, all the same shape. They have colour, they have texture, mm-hmm. um, and so I think we can use that uh, to enhance the taste. Um, so for, for in our research with um, Ferran Adri's uh, test kitchen in, in Spain, another former world's top chef from El Bulli restaurant, with him uh, and his team, with his team really, rather than with him, we um, served people a strawberry mousse mm-hmm. on a black or a white plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and about 70 people tasted the mousse. Half of them tried it from the black plate first and half from the white. We asked them how sweet does it taste, how flavorful and how uh, much do you like it? Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing was that when serving the dessert from the white plate made it taste sweeter to people by about 7% uh, than on a black plate. It was more liked, it was more intense flavour uh, by about 10-13%. Uh, and this was like the first study, for this was from 2012, showing that the colour of the plate makes a difference. That black plates seem to be more associated with savoury. Uh, others have shown that more angular plateware seems to be associated with non-sweet tastes. Maybe that's because, you know, it, it, here in the UK, at least, there was a fashion for black slates, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like for cheese boards and stuff. Yes. And, and so um, and so I think, you know, roundness of plate brings out, helps bring out sweetness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Roundness of the plate, roundness of the Coca-Cola bottle, or even roundness in the food itself that you serve. Mm. Um, and that the white plate seemed to make things sweeter. Pinkish plates will also make things taste sweeter. Hmm. Um and uh, whether that's just because our, we sort of learn over our lifetimes that the majority of desserts tend to come in round white things, mm-hmm. uh, whereas savoury desserts maybe come on a slate instead. Mm. Uh, whether it's about, as you mentioned, kind of colour contrast, I think that's also kind of important too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you're trying to do is you know, make a good contrast between the food you choose to serve and the plate against which it's put. So my own home cooking then um, we'll have a battle with Mrs. Spence because, you know, I have all this science about the perfect plateware. Mm-hmm. And she says, no, I want the flor- flowery plates. That's it. We're not having any of this uh, black angular plates. But I do have a very nice set of black angular plates that I got when I was a student, uh, bachelor. Um, and they're perfect for your Thai green curry with white rice. Mm. That black-white contrast looks so much better than if I serve exactly the same food or, you know, creamy chicken with mashed potatoes. Serve that on a white plate and there's no contrast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that affects... Uh, 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 the, 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 as as regular consumers, but it's even worse 
um, when you get to the elderly and those like my mother who mm -hmm. died of dementia a couple of years mm -hmm. ago in her care home just outside Oxford. They were serving her mostly, you know, hospital care home food. It all seems to be white and tasteless mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. creamy, mushy. And she just couldn't tell what was food, what was plate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah. I was helping those who have difficulty seeing right. to enhance the contrast makes it even more important there. But it is still important for the rest of us. So I wonder, so I do a lot of food photography for my websites and there are times when I feel like I want less contrast. So for instance, if I'm photographing brown food, like if I've got like, I don't know, some beef with some gravy, for instance, putting that on a white plate seems to make it browner in a not appetizing way. And so I found that those things are better on a darker plate, which sort of all it, it it's all brown now, but you're not like, oh, wow, that's really bland brown looking food. <laughs> of course, I know I can put some pops of color on and things like that. Yeah. But like, it's like you want contrast until you don't want contrast or until mm -hmm. you don't want to draw attention to the color. Does that make sense mm -hmm. to you? Yep. Um, so there's probably sort of various things going on. But the, the main point is to say, you know, the, the plate against which and the food and the combination matters. It's not just the food that you're serving. Yes. And that's equally true at home. Um, and so maybe you want to go for the contrast um but other times you might want to use the plate color mm -hmm. to reduce <laughs> as you do in your some of your photography yes. but in both cases it's like thinking more about the plate where and how that food looks against the background uh, and what result you want do you want to make your vegetables look especially green or do you want to you know, uh, not do so um <laughs> and, and, and uh, yeah there's plenty of work now that you can sort of um bias people's perception of, of, of what they're serving you so you can't literally taste the plate but the plate on which you serve your food does affect the taste mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. enjoyment mm -hmm. and, and and i appeal as, as as you mentioned um i have one more thing i want to ask about so you said that we should of course not be watching tv or have our mobile devices with us when we're eating if we want to eat the right amount of food enjoy food what about um, music or distracting features uh, in the soundscape like do we want to have for me and my kids having dinner together on a Wednesday? Should there be music? What kind of music? Or should it be quiet? What should we be doing there? Ah, um, so uh, music definitely matters. Um, I think what we definitely don't want is what one finds in uh, many restaurants with a trend that I think started in the States, in New York City, probably. Blame us for everything. Who, <laughs> chefs who thought... Um, you know, to, to motivate the staff to chop the vegetables in the morning, uh, laid in loud music. And if, if that worked for preparation, why not play the same music for service? Um, and that's kind of gone global now. And so, so many restaurants and bars are being recorded at over 100 decibels of noise. And that's really not what you want, because it's damaging your hearing, never mind suppressing your ability to taste the food. Right. In the home, I guess we were unlikely to get to those very loud noise levels, hopefully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then in terms of the choice of music, um, I think music's better than nothing. Um, because, you know, silence can, can all too easily seem oppressive, like you're in the library and shh, um, and people maybe feel self-conscious about crunching and munching and slurping mm. and whatever other sounds they might make. Um, um, and, and but the music itself, it can, um, from a couple of studies we've just published this year, testing thousands of people in different parts of the world, it turns out, you know, the more you like the music you're listening to, the more you like whatever you're tasting. Oh. So the simplest thing is uh, put on, you know, the most popular liked track for the family and that will make the food taste better right there. Put it on um, some, uh, if you're serving, you know, ethnic cuisines, mm -hmm. then put on some sort of matching ethnic music that okay. will likely uh, help to slightly increase the authenticity of the dish by those who are tasting it um and then think about you know, the tempo of the music because the uh, faster the tempo perhaps the faster people eat um and that if you want to go really far then you can also start using the music you listen to to sonically season your food oh my which is where um we find if you We've worked in, in, in a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, Etch, with uh, Chef Deb Paquet, serving one of her uh, spicy mango salads. And um, we've got music now that sounds very spicy. Mm. And if you're in the restaurant eating the spicy mango salad, we put that spicy music on, the mango salad tastes spicier to you. 
Wow. Uh, I have to say, I can send that to you because I can't, I can't imitate it very well. Um, <laughs> but we've also got sweet music, sour music, salty music, bitter music, um, and we can use it. And we have been using it uh, to bring out a different taste. So, you know, if, if some of us have a sweeter tooth than others, so why not put on some tinkling, high-pitched music, a bit of piano, because mm. that tends to bring out sweetness in what we're tasting. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, be cautious about the... Um, the the downbeat the depressing music what is it whatever it it's um, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings I think it's been shown to be the world's most depressing music ever <laughs> all over the world so that's probably not what you want at meal times because no. that will really <laughs> make it harder for your guests to to to, to appreciate what you put into the food um, so I think the music is there it's in the background and uh, uh, and I sort of say quite seriously I think that you know if you open a bottle of wine to go with your dinner and you find you don't like the wine then why not change the music <laughs> uh, so it really can have that much of an impact on, on on the taste experience it shouldn't that you know we can't just focus on the food whenever we're eating all of these other things are playing a role influencing us whether we realize or not the brightness of the lighting the, mm-hmm. the the music in the background the softness of the chairs the shape of the table you happen to be sitting at all of it the weight of the cutlery of course um the color of the plate mm-hmm. uh, whether you've got napkins or tablecloth or not uh all of it it, it all plays a role um and so, you know, delivering that great meal to your friends, to your family, uh, to do the best job, then it's both about what is on the plate, mm-hmm. um, but it's also about the everything else too, I think. I love that. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Charles. This has been delightful. Pleasure. Pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. So that sure gives us a lot to think about, right? I mean, for me in particular, thinking about all the different things that affect the enjoyment of a meal is really interesting uh, because I do like eating in restaurants so much. And I do find that, you know, what things are called and, and the atmosphere of the room and the music playing and all that contributes to to my experience. So how do we bring that home and how do we make use of it in, you know, cooking for our families and getting them to enjoy the food more and, and relaxing and enjoying the cooking process ourselves, all of that, right? Um, for me, coming up with this meal plan has been a little bit challenging this week because I want to incorporate the things that Dr. Spence said. But um, a lot of the recipes on my website, I purposely name in very generic ways so that they're easy for people to find, whether you're searching online or searching on my website. Um, I don't put descriptors that you might not be able to guess, right? Like I'll have you know, spaghetti and meat sauce as opposed to extra tangy spaghetti with chunky meat sauce, you know, because um, you're not going to be searching for those words and it's easier for you to find them if they don't have interesting names. But I have done my best to find some things from my websites that are delicious and have fun names or come from countries that are, are exciting, interesting. And um, and when I couldn't find those, I added some extra adjectives to them because we can all just add extra adjectives and descriptors to our meals anytime if that's going to help get people to eat them, right? So... On day one of this meal plan, you are going to make a classic Greek soup called Avgolemino. Isn't that fun to say, Avgolemino? I'm sure I'm not saying it with real Greek pronunciation, but whatever. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Avgo means egg and lemino means lemon. And it is a soup that has chicken and some little pastas in it and also is thickened with egg, kind of the way that like hollandaise sauce is thickened with egg, uh, but it doesn't taste like hollandaise sauce. It's just the eggs are, are for richness and thickness. And then there's lemon in there too. And that is one of my 15 minute soups. So that's gonna get ready really quick. And you're gonna love that treat. And I think you're all gonna love walking around saying, I've go lemino. Um, and you're going to serve that with some chopped green peppers and you're going to sprinkle those with some feta cheese. Chop some extra peppers because you're going to have that side dish again on the next day where we're doing crispy chicken melanese. 
So chicken milanese is just an Italian version of a chicken cutlet, but we're giving it the fancy milanese name. And you're going to serve that with the leftover peppers, again with some feta cheese if you are like me and like to put cheese on a lot of things. And then you're also going to make some golden olive oil mashed potatoes. I can't remember if I've told you about these before. It's mashed potatoes that use olive oil instead of butter and milk to add richness. And the olive oil, it's just a subtle flavor, but it also makes them a little bit more yellow in color, which I think tricks my mind into thinking there's tons of butter in there when there's really not. And tricking our mind is important, right? Um, so that is day two. You have the crispy chicken melanese, some um, chopped up peppers with feta cheese, and your golden olive oil mashed potatoes. On day three, we are doing buffalo cod with fettuccine in a ranch alfredo sauce. So the cod has buffalo sauce. If you have people in your house who don't like spicy things, you can do some cod without the buffalo sauce. And then it's a fettuccine alfredo that has ranch dressing in it. So it's just like a little tangier. And what you're going to do is one of my favorite ways to add vegetables to a meal. I take a handful of baby spinach leaves and I put them on the plate. And then I spoon the um, pasta and fish on top of that. And... What it does is it kind of wilts the spinach a little bit and then with each bite of your delicious buffalo cod and ranch alfredo pasta, you also get a little bit of spinach. So there's some vegetable there that's going down pretty easy with all those great flavors. On day four, you're having bacon wrapped pork tenderloin. I have not asked Dr. Spence this, but I suspect that when we say bacon in anything, it probably makes us more excited about the dish. So bacon wrapped pork tenderloin it is. And you're going to have that with zucchini gratin. So a gratin dish is um, just something that has something crunchy on top. That's what it really means. And this one, it's a very, very easy gratin to mix. You use zucchini and summer squash or just one of the two. And you chop it up and it's in like a pie plate with a little bit of cream and then some breadcrumbs on top and it gets all crunchy on top and it's creamy and it's delicious. Make extra of the zucchini gratin because you're going to have it on the last day of this meal plan with steak Diane, which is a classic steak dish with mushrooms and a creamy sauce. And you'll have that leftover zucchini gratin with that. And you're going to make some crunchy garlic toast to go with that. So that is our meal plan with excitingly named dishes. And that is our show for today. I hope you had a great time learning about ways to get people to enjoy their meals more. And to um, be kinder to yourself about the pressure to make delicious things all the time and to, you know, just be you because you're great. Have a great day. Bye. TMI is a production by Zwain Entertainment. Have a production for your company or project? Contact Zwain at ZwainEntertainment.com. That's Z-O-U-A-I-N Entertainment.com. Music by Audio Snack. Check out more of their music at audio-snack.com. Replays were harmed during the making of the show.